I hear God's holy word from Exodus chapter 20, continuing our study in God's law, in his Ten Commandments. And God spoke all of these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have given us your holy law and we have heard it. So now enable us, we pray, to obey it, to keep it, write it in our hearts now as we study your word together. Give us your Holy Spirit that we might make all the right applications. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If y'all like those extra fans, why don't you think uh, Davis, I think Carter Lichty had something to do with those as well. Uh, so uh, give them give them a hug. <laughs> And keep, and Matthew Adams. Okay, we, we want to make sure everybody gets uh, included. <laughs> At the same time, keep praying that we won't need them much longer, that we uh, can be in a, a climate-controlled, comfortable place. But I'm very thankful for this space now. I recently read the story of Mark Landis, who is a simple man in his 60s who lives in Laurel, Mississippi, who also happens to be one of the most notorious art forgers in the world. And he's never made a penny off of his forgeries, and he's never been prosecuted, though he is a fantastic painter. He studied at the Art Institute of Chicago, and he has this amazing ability to perfectly replicate other artists' paintings. And for some reason, that's not clear to anybody, and he's never taken the time to explain he began donating his forgeries to museums and churches. Uh, from the 80s to the early 2000s, Mark donated hundreds of works of forged art to smaller museums in mid-sized cities who didn't carefully authenticate the works that he donated. First of all, because they were smaller museums. Second of all, because they were gifts. Why would you, why would you authenticate a gift? And all in all, he, he tricked 60 museums in 20 states. The crazy thing is he never actually broke any laws. Uh, if he sold the art, or even if he accepted a tax deduction for his gifts, there may have been grounds to prosecute. But instead, this guy went around the country giving away free, fake paintings to museums at his own expense. And there's no law against that. You can do that. <laughs> you can do that. But his benefit was zero, which is kind of hilarious to me in a darkly humorous way. Uh, why would you take all this time to do this and to and to donate this bad, uh, these fake, they, they were actually very beautiful, but very uh, fake forge, forged art. This is a pretty good illustration, pretty good illustration of idolatry. An, idol, uh, uh, an idol is anything that is a forgery, a fake, a bad facsimile that is exalted as a replacement of the true and living God, but it doesn't actually do anyone any good. An idol has no value. It brings no benefit to anyone. Anything that you exalt to worship and serve, anything that you think has the power to bring you joy and peace and deliverance, that is not the triune God, is an idol. An idol is useless. It is vain. It is as pointless as the art of Mark Landis. Idolatry is not like exchanging the God of creation for some God or something of slightly lesser value, not like getting the generic laundry detergent 
rather than the brand name laundry detergent. It's not like it's not like getting the Walmart basketball shoes instead of the Air Jordans. Uh, because the Walmart basketball shoes are still shoes. They still fit on your feet. You can still wear them. Idolatry is not just replacing God with something of slightly lesser value. Idolatry is the attempt to dethrone the triune God of creation and put in his place a sorry, sad, pathetic, counterfeit substitute that has none of his power to save, none of his power to defend or heal, None of his authority, none of his wisdom or goodness or might. Idolatry is living with a cheap knockoff that has no upside, has no value, and it has big penalties that come with it. The prophet Jeremiah put it this way. He said, uh, speaking for God, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Idolatry is really two sins. It's first forsaking the fountain of sweet water that is God and replacing him with a broken cistern, a broken jar, a broken bowl that does nothing for you. It can't hold water. We think of idolatry primarily as worshiping images, of bowing down before statues of old gods of the ancient world. But the Ten Commandments identify three different forms of idolatry in the first three commandments. The first form of idolatry that is prohibited is covenantal idolatry. Have no other gods before me, the first commandment says. That's That first form of idolatry is is breaking covenant with the God of creation, ignoring his word, and entering into a covenant, aligning with and identifying with false gods. That's covenantal idolatry, breaking covenant with God and his word and creating covenant with a false uh, thing that can't save. The second form of idolatry in the Ten Commandments is liturgical idolatry. He says, do not make graven images. That's entering into false worship. That's engaging in pagan worship practices. Uh, Faithful worship has always been word-based worship. All throughout history, from Genesis forward, faithful worship is word-based. It's never been image-based. And yet, uh, even in the church, we have have been plagued with image-based worship for for a couple thousand years. But faithful worship has always been word-based. And the second commandment, forbids liturgical idolatry, worshiping before an idol. The third commandment addresses practical idolatry. Do not take the name of your Lord in vain. Uh, Do not carry his name in an empty way. That has to do with hypocrisy, treating the name of God uh, that has been placed on you as if it were nothing. So in the first three commandments, we get three kinds of idolatry. We have covenantal, liturgical, and practical. And so what that means for us is in our study in the Ten Commandments, We're going to spend the first three weeks talking about idolatry and looking at three different forms of idolatry, which should be really useful because at the center of every one of our problems, at the center of every conflict, at the center of every struggle is an idol. The the core of every sin and, and every struggle is an idol, something we've exalted as God that cannot save and can only hurt us. And so we'll look at these in turn. The first commandment begins like this, just as I read a moment ago. We read in Exodus 20, once again, God spoke all these things saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. 
This is the context for the whole law of God. God's commandments are delivered at Mount Sinai in the context of deliverance. The God who is the lawgiver is the God who is the deliverer. The one who saves you is the one who now has the authority to direct your life. He says, I delivered you out of the house of bondage. I delivered you out of Egypt. And now I have some things to tell you. I have some commandments for you. And this is the order of things as God relates to his people, Israel. And as he writes their story, first their slavery under darkness, buried in Egypt, God defeats the false gods of Egypt and he resurrects his people out of that deathly bondage. He makes them pass through the waters of the Red Sea. And now he speaks his laws to them. This sequence is important. First, they are rescued. They pass through the water and then he speaks his laws to them. They, together with their children, are brought out of death, given new life, brought through the waters, and constituted as a people as he speaks to them. You, people of God, have passed through a similar story. That's your script as well. That's your life story. You have been rescued. You, together with your children, have been rescued out of darkness and bondage and delivered into light. You have passed through the waters of baptism And now God speaks to you. Jesus has rescued you. And now he has the authority to speak to you. That's not legalism to do what Jesus says now. The one who rescued you has authority over you. And if you do what he says, that's not bondage. That's not legalism. That's obedience. That's life. Now, God could have spoken his laws to them through Moses back in Egypt. He could have spoken his law first and then save them. But that would have given us a very different story of redemption. The way he demonstrates it shows us that first he saves us, then he gives us his law. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that the law is not a means to redemption. That means it's not a, a way to merit his favor. It's not a way to earn his love, which you can never do. It was never about that. The fact that you are delivered first means that he has already loved you. He has already set his favor on you. He has always already been gracious to you. And now in response to this, you lead a life that is pleasing to him, a life of blessing, a life of peace. And it teaches us also that the one who delivers us has the right to be our king. Another way of looking at that, another way of thinking of that is to say that the thing that you look to to ultimately save you is your God. The thing that you look to for comfort, the thing that you look to for relief of anxiety, what you look to for hope, that is your God. Now, let me qualify that briefly because I turn to coffee every single morning for relief and for comfort. And I give thanks to the God of heaven and earth for coffee. And I praise Jesus for the gift of coffee. But it's not my idol because it's not more important to me than God. I can live without coffee. I can do it. I can't do without the fellowship of the triune God. There are, however, things that we turn to that we can't give thanks for because they're sinful or they're wasteful or they're empty or good things that we can't give thanks for because we're abusing them. We're, uh, we're using them in a way that, that isn't grateful to God, such as that we're willing to sin to get to it. Those are idols. We want to be very clear. Uh, There are many things that God has given us for our enjoyment and benefit and healing and hope. God works through means all the time. He works through bread and wine and water and oxygen and medicine and rest and friendship. 
He works through his church. He works through means all the time. And if we're using those things in a way that's grateful to God for giving them to us, those are not idols. But if any one of those things are so important to us that we are willing to sin to have it, and if we turn to them in spite of our rebellion against God and refuse to give thanks to God, then that is an idol. Those are idols. So it's important to qualify this. Idols aren't anything that someone else has that you don't like. Idols aren't anything that somebody else does that you don't like. Sometimes you see somebody with a nice car who really likes taking care of it, who waxes it, and you say, ah, that's his idol. Well, you don't know that. It may be, but you don't know that. Maybe he just really is giving thanks to God for giving him the ability to work and to enjoy something that brings him pleasure. And and if it were to go away tomorrow, he wouldn't lose faith and he wouldn't lose hope. Or maybe he does worship it. Maybe he loves it so much that he he spends more time uh, uh, loving his car than he does loving his kids. You know, it could be, but it's not automatically. If somebody really enjoys a certain hobby or if they have a passion that you don't have and they spend a lot of time on it, that doesn't necessarily mean that's their idol. It may be, but that's not that's not automatic. And of course, we all have enough of our own idols, real idols, we need to be worrying about before making sweeping judgments that everybody has a f- fishing pole is, you know, uh, making an idol out of fishing. That's not that's not the that's not the case. And I promise you that coffee is not my idol. I mean, I know I don't, but I promise you. It, so. So then an idol can be a philosophy, an institution, a discipline, a habit, an addiction, an object, a person might even be a very good thing that you are abusing and not giving thanks for and allowing to rule your life. The thing that rules you is the thing that is your God. And if you are worshiping a created thing over the creator, then that, of course, is idolatry. And you can really take your pick. The world is offering you an expansive menu of false gods for you to choose from. There's almost no limit to the number of non-biblical paths to holiness and human flourishing and comfort at your disposal, except that none of them have a Christ and none of them have a cross and none of them have an empty tomb and none of them have a king reigning over heaven and earth. Not one of them has a solution to your problem of sin and not one of them has a solution to the problem that you are going to die one day. None of them have any solutions for any of those things and they're all going to leave you desperate and lonely and hurting and hopeless. If you reject the triune God, you are going to choose something else. You are going to worship another God. You think just Christians go to church? No, everybody goes to church. Everybody has a church. Everybody worships something. Uh, G.K. Chesterton put it this way famously. He said, when a man stops believing in God, he doesn't then believe in nothing. He believes in anything. Uh, rejecting God doesn't mean that suddenly you're irreligious. It just means that now you'll just worship anything. You are going to look for something to save you. And the thing that you look to save you or bring you peace, that is now your God. And that is what will rule you. And you need to know that there are some very cruel, dehumanizing, hateful gods in this world. And the Bible uses the word gods, small g, God uses the word gods. He says in verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. In these commandments, Yahweh doesn't hesitate to use the word gods, powers. The word, the Hebrew word is Elohim. Elohim um, is, is the word for power or authority. 
When he says, you shall have no other gods before me, he says this recognizing that there are small g gods in the world. There are other authorities that we are tempted to worship. So the, the word Elohim is kind of a generic word, just meaning ruler, power, uh, uh, authority. So that's why throughout the Bible, if the word Elohim is used for the God of creation, there are all other words around it. Um, so it's my God, my Elohim, Elohim of Abraham, God of Abraham, Yahweh Elohim. Uh, Elohim of armies, God of armies, Elohim of my salvation, God of my salvation. Because there are a lot of Elohims, there are a lot of powers, there are a lot of rulers, there are a lot of authorities. So you want to be specific. What God are you talking about? Well, we're talking about the triune God, the living God, the God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has a name. He has a name, Jesus. In the Old Covenant, he gave his name, Yahweh. He has a name. He's not just a generic God. He's not just a generic Elohim, though there are Elohims in the world. Anything that is bigger than us, anything that is more powerful than us, that we don't have control over, anything that has influence in the world is an Elohim. <clears throat> and Yahweh said that he was going to strike the gods, he was going to strike the Elohim of Egypt. When he did that, what did he go after? Well, he struck the river. The Nile River in Egypt was an Elohim. It, it, it is a power. It is a, it is a God. It swells its banks and floods in the rainy season. It goes low in the dry season. It gives life to the land. You depend on it, but you can't control it. It's mightier than you, but you must not worship it. Except the Egyptians did. They did worship it. God struck the animals. He struck the skies above. He struck the sun. All of these are mighty, powerful things. You can't control the sun. You can't make it shine brighter or less. You can't control the weather. You can't stop a hurricane or a tornado. You can't stop the earth from shaking. All of these are Elohim. All of these are gods, small g, in biblical terminology. They're bigger than you. And therefore, you're tempted to worship them, but you must not. Yahweh Yahweh forbids it. Now, not only are there Elohim in creation, but men are gods too. I think some of you, are, you, you could quote Psalm 82 or you know Psalm 82. What does that say? Um, listen to this. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods, the, the Elohim. That's the same word there. I said, you are gods. And all of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. God judges among the powers, the rulers, the authorities of the earth, and he recognizes that they are real. If you're in Exodus 20, and you could flip over one or two pages in Exodus 22, this word is used over here as well in uh, laws concerning theft in verse 8 of chapter 22. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the Elohim, your translation probably says judges, the word is gods, but we understand that it's human judges brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand to his neighbor's goods. And the word judges, Elohim, is used a couple times in the next couple of verses. The point is that rulers and governments and princes and kings are Elohim. They are gods. They have power. They, in mass, have authority. They are bigger than us, and they seem to do whatever they please. They accomplish whatever they put their minds to. As people together develop a herd mentality, a group think that seems impossible to change or move or to, or to shift, the Bible recognizes that these powers exist. And the first commandment of God acknowledges that all of these powers compete for our highest allegiances, and this must be rejected outright. 
Their power over us must be demonstrably rejected where it conflicts with the power and the uniqueness of God. We must never allow human authorities to put themselves on the same footing as the triune God. We must never allow them to assume a place of highest authority in our mind or in our heart or over our whole being. And especially in a free society, they need to be reminded early and often that they are not the highest power in heaven and on earth, though they quite often assume that they are. They think, of course, there's nothing higher or more powerful or more influential than their own own rule. And of course, they're only looking out for you, right? They're, they're only, they, they have your best in mind. They want to care from you, for, for you from, from cradle to grave. They're just trying to do what's best for you. Well, God has given them authority. And for that authority, honor and obedience is due, but it's not absolute authority. And where their rule over us opposes God's rule over us and infringes upon God's authority, it is our duty to oppose them. The first commandment requires that the uniqueness of God's ultimate final authority be maintained above all false Elohim and all real Elohim, all gods. We do not elevate any other gods before his face, making them equal to God. We must not, and that is forbidden. Now, you know that Yahweh delivered the law through Moses to the people at Mount Sinai where Israel was constituted as a nation, but that generation that received God's law died in the wilderness. And then 40 years later, before the next generation goes into the land of promise, Moses reviews the Ten Commandments and he preaches sermons based on God's law. And those sermons are collected in the book we call Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy not only gives us the law itself, but lots of application, a lot of preaching on the law. And so I want to refer to that in our study. Uh, chapter 6 through 11 of Deuteronomy is all instruction and application from the first commandment, from the first law word. And it begins like this. If you want to join me over there, if you're following along, I'm just going to look at two places over there in Deuteronomy. And that's, that's all. But I want to show you this. And you can read the whole section for yourself from Deuteronomy 6 to 11 the whole section of his instruction on the first commandment. But here's, here's how he starts talking about the first commandment in chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That is an application of the first commandment. The way that you keep the first commandment is to keep the rule of God over all things before your eyes and on your hands and on the doorposts of your house and on the gates of your city as you diligently teach God's word to the next generation. You teach God's word to your children as you go, as you get in the car and as you head out to the grocery store, or you head out to the park, or you head out to the soccer field, you're teaching. Everything is a teachable moment. Everything and everywhere gives you an opportunity to talk about God's mercies, the salvation of our God, the requirements of our God upon us, His law and His word. Everything is a teaching moment. You teach as you rise up and as you lay down at, at night. 
This is how you keep God enthroned in your home, in your heart, and in your children's hearts. And you preserve your family, you preserve yourself from first commandment idolatry. By keeping God's word as the primary source, the original source of wisdom and instruction, you never make a decision without asking first, what pleases God? Does God have anything to say about this? Does God's word tell us what to do here? You don't hold a position without aligning it with what God has said. When you have a problem, you find out what the triune God solution is first. Not what do I feel about this, but what has God said? And that is what is going to direct our steps. And if we all do this, there are a great many promises that are ours. Now, so that was at the beginning of this long sermon on the first commandment. And at the end of that sermon, Moses Moses wraps up this way over in chapter 11, verse 13. And it shall be, if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine and your oil. And I will send grass in your fields for your livestock that you may eat and be filled. Take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, lest Yahweh's anger be aroused against you. And he shut up the heavens so that there be no rain and the land yield no produce and you perish quickly from the good land which Yahweh is giving you. Let's skip down to verse 22. For if you carefully keep all these commandments which I command you to do, to love Yahweh your God, to walk in his ways and to hold fast to him, then Yahweh will drive out all of these nations from before you and will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourselves. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. From the wilderness in Lebanon, from the river and the river Euphrates, even to the western sea shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand against you. Yahweh your God will put the dread of you and the fear of you upon all the land where you tread, just as he said to you. That is the promise. God says, keep me enthroned and do that primarily by treasuring and obeying my word. And if you do that, you will not be subject to the oppression of the other Elohim of this world. They will flee before you. Now, God's promises are always true. And as we saw last week, his promises and his law have only been amplified. They've only been elevated and glorified in Jesus. He's now poured out his Holy Spirit upon us in a way that empowers us to obey even more. So why don't we see this kind of blessing in our world now? Why isn't this realized here today? Why hasn't God driven out our enemies? Why do we live in a land full of idols and false religion? Why are we oppressed by idolaters? Why have the wicked ascended in our society? Why don't we possess the land? Why are we subject to so much frustration and powerlessness? Well, if we work backwards from the answer, we find out it's because we're not keeping the first commandment. Our problem is idolatry, and that problem is in the church. We're not taking seriously every word of God in the church. And again, idolatry is not just cars or money or football or fishing or careers. Idolatry is primarily grounded in ignorance of God's word. The opposite of idolatry is to hear every word, every statute, 
every command, every ordinance, every precept in the text of the Bible and to keep it no matter what the cost, no matter what it costs us. But we don't. We don't do it in the church. And if we don't do it in the church, then how in the world do we expect the world to obey what God has said? Do we really think that's going to happen unless it first begins in the church? And we can't keep God's law because we simply do not know it. We, as a generation, as a people, and y'all are above average. I'll give you that. You are above average. But in, in the church, in the Western world, we are biblically illiterate as a generation. In fact, a few generations of people are now biblically illiterate because for the last few decades, children are born into churches and they spend their years growing up in children's church where they color pictures of Noah's Ark and play dodgeball with the youth pastor and they get superficial lessons. They aren't trained to know the Bible. They aren't trained to know how it fits together. They don't participate in the sacramental life of the church or the liturgical life of the church. Most of them get a state education all week long. And then when they go to a secular college after graduating high school, the goal of their professors is to eradicate all of, of, of whatever wisp of faith that they have left and they're done for. They're absolutely done for. We're not producing arrows for the hand of a mighty warrior. We're producing nerf darts. We're training not soldiers of the cross. We're training selfish, ignorant twerps who don't know what God says. And that's what you're seeing on our city streets. It's a failure of fatherhood and a failure of the church to equip fathers to be fathers and a failure to expect anybody to obey God's law. It's a failure to expect anybody to hear and apply and do what God says in the church. To, to, to put on them this expectation of what Moses says to do here. So you and I, now, we get to live in a world of idolatry because we don't know the Bible inside out and we don't align our lives according to its truths. We think the Bible has some nice stories, has got some good moral content, you know, maybe some inspirational poetry for us to get a little pick-me-up every once in a while, but we assume that it doesn't have the answer for my depression. It doesn't have the answer for my anxiety. It doesn't have the answer for my addictions and my bad habits. It doesn't have anything to say about how I talk to my wife or the answer for why we can't get along or why there's always screaming in my house. It has none of those answers. We assume it has none of those answers because be honest, we're not reading it. And we've committed idolatry by not knowing the Bible. Our thoughts are not being formed by God's word and by enthroning him over all things. Our thoughts are shaped by other voices and we've given that over to them. Are we idolaters? Well, come on, what are you talking about? We don't have any statues. We don't, we don't kneel down and pray to saints. We're not idolatries. No, no, not, not that way. But if we don't know the Bible, and through the scriptures keep God enthroned over all, that's also idolatry. So the response and the answer to this is regular systematic reading of God's word, not just flipping open the Bible and seeing, you know, if the Holy Spirit leads you to something today, which always happens to be a, a genealogy. If you just flip it open, you start reading something. Regular, systematic reading of God's word, hearing it in worship, seeing it, getting good teaching as often as possible, then speaking it as you live it and as you obey it. That's the only way to have stability. That is the only way to have order in your life, in your home, in our society. And until we do that, we will only have more chaos 
That is a given. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that we would be as your people, people who enthrone you over all things by applying, knowing, studying, living in your word. So we ask you to keep sending us your spirit and fill us with your spirit that we may keep your commandments. And that we we pray that you would give us the grace and the ability to enthrone you, repent of our idolatry, and keep your word before us all of our days. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.